Scripture reading this evening will come from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 53, 1 through 9. And it reads, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, And like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Thank you and be seated. I'm very happy to be with you this evening. Thank you for your presence tonight. Stan, thank you for leading us in those beautiful songs this evening. And for the fine prayers, the scripture reading, we're all very grateful. Thankful that we can come together and worship God in this fine way, in the way which God has prescribed in the pages of the Bible. We turn tonight to one of my favorite chapters of the Word of God, Isaiah 53. If I had to know only one Old Testament book, it would be Isaiah. Because Isaiah tells us more about Christ, more about his coming kingdom, the church, more about his sacrifice, his resurrection, than any other Old Testament book. And if I had to pick just one chapter out of the book of Isaiah, I'd pick this chapter 53, because it describes the Lord in such prophetic way, so specifically, that there can be no doubt in the mind of any that he's referring to the Christ, the Messiah of God. Now, as I think about this, this great passage of Scripture, probably there's a way to uh, study this that might be more helpful to us than just going through it and looking at it by means as a history, a reference to Christ's life. As I look at Isaiah 53, I want to notice how and what the writer is saying, but then I want to apply it to myself. Let me illustrate what I mean. It was Thomas Chambers, who was a Protestant minister in Europe, And when he had passed away, his family had found his Bible. 
And in his Bible, he had verse 5 and verse 6 underlined. And he had taken out the plural pronouns and penciled in personal pronouns. And it made the reading quite different. Let's notice that. In Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 5, I'll do it the way he changed the reading. But he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought me peace. And with his wounds, I am healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. I have turned every one to my own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of me, myself. You see, there's one way to study the passage, Isaiah 53, as it looks and prescribes to the coming Messiah from Isaiah's viewpoint. And then there's another way that we should look at it, and that's the personal application. And so I want to do that tonight. I want us to understand what Isaiah is talking about in this very unique passage of Scripture. But yet I want us to apply it to ourselves. And I want us to see just how important that life that Isaiah describes is for us. If we fail to do this, of course, we're going to miss much of the application and the purpose of the book. Isaiah is a unique book of the Bible. It has 66 chapters. There are a lot of similarities, some have pointed out. There are 66 books in the Bible. In fact, some have called Isaiah the miniature Bible. 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old and 27 in the New. 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. 39 deal with the sin and rebellion of the children of Israel and its consequences. 27 deal with the hope of the Messiah and his coming. The name Isaiah means salvation, but so does the name Jesus. The real point begins at about verse 13 of chapter 52. Now, you know that the chapter divisions are a rather arbitrary thing that editors have placed in our text, and they're not inspired. The verse divisions, the chapter divisions, they're editorial editions. It would uh, seem that the chapter should begin back up there in 52 and 13, because in 52, 13, he really describes God's view of this suffering servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now that's exactly how God viewed his servant. But that's not how he is viewed by man. He was crucified and brutalized. By verse 14 of chapter 52... It tells us that that occurred to him beyond recognition. As many were astonished as you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And he goes on then to ask the question, which we want to study tonight in the beginning of our moments, our discussion together. How does God see his servant, and how does Isaiah describe him? First of all, who has believed our report? 
He sang in Isaiah 53 and 1. Nobody's believed it. The arm of the Lord has been there. The arm of the Lord and the power of the Lord has performed these miracles. But no one listened to him. Even though God was doing miracles and his servant was doing miracles, they still despised him. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God has sent his servant, but they wouldn't listen to him. God sent great power by means of miracles and performed to verify who the servant was, but they wouldn't listen and they wouldn't believe. The Apostle Paul used this verse in Romans chapter 10 and verse 16 to describe how the Jews were rejecting the gospel. They wouldn't believe the word of God. Even though God views him, 52 and 13, high and exalted, raised and resurrected, but yet modern man and ancient man reject the Messiah which God has sent. Now he describes him in another way in verse 2. He shall grow up. And I think the wording is interesting. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now before I go any further with that second verse, I want you to notice who's watching him. For he grew up before him. Who's the him there? I'm studying Isaiah 53. Now I'm looking at verse 2. And I'm trying to do two things. I'm trying to understand what the prophet said, and I'm trying to apply it to myself. Well, what is he saying? He grew up before him. God was watching him. God knew that he was his son. God had given him to the world. The world wasn't watching him. The world wasn't concerned about him, but God was. And God was watching him grow and develop and knew that this one was his only begotten Son of God, that he had sent. But it said he grew up before him like a young plant. In other words, he was just a young one growing up, growing up in a barren land which was very difficult for anything to grow. But yet this young one grew and was doing the will of God. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. A continuation of verse 2. Now, a lot of people have tried to find the right look for Jesus. And a lot of people have tried to paint just the right picture. If you go to the world's greatest art museums, and I have not done that, I've been to just a few here and there, but every art museum I've ever been to, someone, somewhere, has tried to do a portrait of Jesus. If you look at the movies that we have about Jesus today, and movies that we've had about Jesus in the past. Notice the one who's always playing the role of Jesus. He's a very handsome young man, probably has rather long hair, has uh, just a short beard. He speaks perfect King James English, and he has a wonderful English accent. And there's always a light, a backlight behind him, which sort of gives a glow about his face. Now, there wasn't anything like that about Jesus. He says in the latter portion of verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. When he's saying that we should look at him, he's saying he didn't have any kind of striking physical features that we would look twice at. Now, there are people in the Bible who had rather striking physical features. 
For example, in Genesis chapter 29 and verse 17, there Leah is described as a woman with weak eyes. But her sister Rachel is a beautiful woman who's beautiful both in form and appearance, Moses says. She was a woman that you would look twice at. It is said also in Genesis 39, verse 6, Joseph was a beautiful man. He was very comely. He had the kind of physical features that were very striking, one that you would look twice at. It is said of David in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 18 that he was a very comely man and that he was the kind of individual that was a ruddy, of a ruddy complexion, a very handsome type individual. The Bible does describe individuals with special physical features that were very handsome or very beautiful. But when it comes to the looks of the Lord, there was no form, there was no comeliness that we should desire him. If he were walking in a crowd, we would not give him a second look because of the way he looked. He was not attractive with regard to special features. He was very ordinary, very normal. Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 tells us that he had a rather normal growing up, but he grew up very healthy. He was not deformed or handicapped in any way, but at the same time he had no special physical features that would be so attractive that we would be drawn to him because of that. He didn't have any special majestic robes that he wore. As you saw him, you wouldn't see any kind of special king or special dignitary. He had no form or majesty, Isaiah says, that we should look at him. We are not drawn to him because of his looks. We are not drawn to him because of his bearing, be it regal or otherwise. He was very ordinary. And if we just looked at him we probably would pass over him because there was nothing special about his looks. But, verse 3, he was rejected and despised. I say they didn't understand him for who and what he was. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hid their faces and he was despised and we esteemed him not. To say that he was despised is to say that they had contempt for him. They didn't give any special consideration. Hanging on the cross, they showed their contempt. They laughed at him and rebuked him. Even though he was suspended between heaven and earth, hanging on that wooden cross, they gave no special regard to the Lord, but they despised him. You see, they really didn't understand he was the Christ of God. They rejected him. In fact, he uses that verb. He was despised and rejected by men. To be rejected means that he just cut him off. You know what that means. You probably do that every day like I do. I'll turn on the television set and I'll listen to someone talking about this and I'll just cut them off, go to another channel. And then this one's selling that and I don't want to listen. I just cut them off and go to something 
that does have my interest or tries to get my interest for the brief moment that I happen to be watching that thing. We cut people off all the time. We might be having someone try to speak to us, and we just cut them off. Maybe we're standing there listening, but our minds are not there. We cut them off. That's the way they were with Jesus. They cut him off. They rejected him. They didn't understand him. He was cut off, but he's described as a man of sorrows. And notice how in verse 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, the word acquainted there bears special study. The word acquainted is to say he knew more about this than just having a passive, passing experience of it. Somebody says, are you acquainted with Bob? Are you acquainted with Bill? Yeah, I met them. I had a a passing uh, introduction with Bob and Bill. But this is not what the word acquainted here means. The word acquainted here means he understands all about it. He's been through the suffering. He's been through the trial. He's experienced it. He's lived it firsthand. The anxiety, the, the sickness, the disease... The word conveys the idea he knows firsthand what these matters are all about. And yet, what was the response? He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We didn't give him the proper respect that should have been given. By the time you get to verse 4, he uses the phrase that he's borne our griefs. And by verses 4 through 6, he starts talking about the reasons that the servant has suffered. He has borne our griefs. You see, modern Judaism today tries to say that this refers to the land of Israel. This kind of uh, passage, such as Isaiah 53, refers to Israel as a nation. Modern scholars will try to limit this. And say it doesn't refer to any one particular person. It refers to God's people. It refers to the people of God coming out of Babylonian captivity. And on and on the theories go. But notice how personal the servant is. Number one, the servant is innocent. The servant didn't deserve this. What Israel got, it deserved. God sent prophet after prophet to preach to the people of Israel to get them to repent of their sins And yet they would not, and the difficulty and the suffering that they faced, they deserved what they got. Indeed, this particular one dies for the people. Obviously, he's not talking about the people itself. He's talking about one particular one. The issues really settle for us when we go to the New Testament, and we see how Philip is teaching the Ethiopian, and he's riding in the chariot. And he reads from this very passage of Scripture. And he asks the question, uh, who is this being spoken of? Is the prophet speaking of himself or is he speaking of someone else? And at that very same Scripture, Philip began to speak unto him Jesus. It's very clear that he's talking about Jesus Christ and the suffering that he bore. Now let me talk about the word born there. Surely he has borne our griefs. To say that he has borne our griefs is to say that he has lifted up the grief. The grief that was mine now has become his. The grief that I had to suffer and I had to go through, he's borne that. He's lifted it up. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's carrying that sorrow. The sorrow that I have gone through, the sorrow that you have gone through, he's picked that sorrow up. 
and made it his own sorrow. He carries it. These words are striking. And we esteemed him what? Stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You see him in verse 4. For him to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted means that he was given a mortal wound. When you use words like this, it's conveying the idea that you have been wounded mortally. You've been wounded seriously, but by whom? The prophet is saying he was wounded by God. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. What was their view toward him? He deserved what he got. God's giving it to him, and he's suffering on the cross because of his own problems. He's getting what he's deserved. The people of Jesus' day looked upon him as he suffered on the cross for the sins of the world as getting just punishment for deserts deserved. It reminds you of the three friends of Job, where that they came to Job, and Job's wondering, why am I going through this? Why am I going through this grief? Why am I going through this suffering? And each one, in his own clever way, tries to convince Job, you're getting what you deserve. This is what you got coming. And that's the way people looked at Jesus. When Jesus was dying on the cross, they looked at it as God's doing this to you because of who you are. Now, Job did not deserve that kind of rationale from his three friends. He did not deserve the suffering that he faced. And Jesus didn't either. But he went through it. For my transgression, he was wounded for my iniquities. By the time you get to verse 5, he's wounded for my transgressions is his point. Now, notice the word that is used in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Sometimes the word bruised is used here. Pierced, the word crushed is used in the next portion. He was crushed for our iniquities. And it means in a very serious way that he was punished severely by those who were around him. He was pierced or crushed, though he did not deserve it. He did not have it coming. The people looked upon him in that regard. God's doing this to you. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now this chastisement that I want to make mention of means that because of what he has faced and gone through, now I have peace because what God has done. I have satisfaction, I have peace and justification because of what Jesus has had to face. He was pierced, he was crushed, and chastisement has now been made, and I have peace because what he has done. Now let's take a moment in review and stop for a second and catch our breath because we've covered a lot of material, really. One thing that I've learned, how does the prophet describe the suffering servant? Jesus, the Son of God. He describes him as a person that didn't have any special looks about him that would cause people to want to look toward him or follow him because of his physical appearance. In fact, we've learned that there was nothing royal about his physical appearance, 
and that if he were in the crowd, he might slip right through the crowd and we not think anything about him. We might miss him altogether. If we're just looking at the physical appearance of Christ and thinking about Christ physically only, then we might miss the whole Christ of the Bible altogether. If we're just looking at the physical part of this, then we're going to fail to see God working behind it all, bringing salvation and making it possible for man. I want to go to verse 6, and I have to press along here, and I think verse 6 is a very important verse, and we need to look at it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Isaiah is saying in verse 6 is we're all guilty of sin. Could very well be that he's talking about the universality of sin here. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone our own way. We didn't follow the way of the Lord. We didn't follow the way of God, but we went our way. Isn't that the truth of the matter? Notice over here in another Bible passage, Isaiah chapter 55 and The passage is verse 8 that I have in mind. Since I'm in this portion of the Bible, I'll use Isaiah 55 and 8 to illustrate the point that Isaiah has in mind. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, God says. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are different from our ways. God tells us to do one thing and we do something else. God tells us this is the way for your life, but I want to do another thing. I want to do something else. Isaiah is making that point in verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And Isaiah is including himself in that. And you and I would have to include ourselves in that. We've all gone our own way. We've all decided to do it our way. He's talking about rebellion there in verse 6. That we failed to notice the shepherd of our life. It's not within man to direct his own steps, Jeremiah 10 and 23. We've got to follow the will of God. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now notice what happened here, and I think the wording is, in, is significant. He didn't say all we were born astray. He didn't say in this passage we were born to do this or we were born in a condemned condition. What he says in verse 6 is we have gone astray. We decided to do this. We didn't inherit this sinful condition. We didn't inherit this rebellious attitude. We decided to take it on ourselves. We are gone astray. We did it ourselves. All we like sheep have gone astray. Rather than follow the will of God, we've freely chosen to follow that which is sinful. And a remarkable passage comes in verse 7. He opened not his mouth. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Similes of a lamb, of lamb, a lamb and sheep are used, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. I don't think in this instance that he never opened his mouth 
in moments of agony and pain. Obviously, he said several things from the cross while he was suffering. And even though he was being flogged with the Roman flog, I don't think that he has to say here he never was able or never even opened his mouth in anguish and pain. What he means by this particular passage is he didn't say, wait a minute, you're persecuting the wrong guy. Wait a minute, I'm innocent of any of this. I don't need to be going through this. He didn't try to justify himself. He didn't try to defend himself verbally. He didn't try to say, you're doing the wrong thing to the wrong guy here. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And even Pilate was impressed with the fact when Pilate turned to Jesus and said, do you see the things that they're saying about you? Do you not know that I have the power of life and death over you? Yet he was silent, and Pilate is impressed with the silence and the aplomb and decorum of the Lord. The prophet is describing the Messiah. He opened not his mouth. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't beg for mercy. He didn't try to say, you've got the wrong guy here. But like a lamb, he offers himself as a sacrifice for the world. As a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's cut off for the transgression of my people. It's a difficult passage, verse 8. Let's deal with it. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? The phrase oppression and judgment is a difficult one. There are two views of thought with regard to its meaning. Does that simply mean that his life was taken away? Might have, might be. Or I think the context bears the idea that an innocent, innocent judgment was given but that was taken away from him, and they killed him anyway. Even though an innocent judgment was rendered, they was taken away from the land of the living. My, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Who was going to speak about this particular matter? And who would tell others about this great event that was taking place of that generation? That generation wouldn't have anything to do with it. That generation wouldn't have said anything about it. Christ had specially chosen 12 men that they would go and preach this message to the world. And so they did. And when people heard it, they were pricked in their heart and they obeyed the gospel telling people about this sacrifice, this selfless, sinless life that was offered. Who's going to tell this story today? Is the world going to tell the story about this sacrifice? No, it's not going to do it. Who's going to tell this story today? Who's going to help people understand that there was sacrifice that was made for the sins of the world? The church's responsibility is to tell the world about this story and tell the world about this individual. Is the church going to be embarrassed about this story? Is the church going to be ashamed of this story? 
and refused to tell the people, look, there was a suffering servant that Isaiah wrote about a thousand years back, and now in turn, here he was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, that's what you see inspired apostles and prophets doing in the New Testament. Paul is going from here and there, and he starts with the Old Testament, and he's bringing up these matters to people, and he's convincing people, this is the Christ, the Son of God. Who's going to tell that story today? We've got to tell that story. It's not their responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's not their responsibility. It's our responsibility. Who's going to tell the story in this generation? And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That's what Isaiah is asking. Who's going to tell this story about that? Stricken for the transgression of my people. And then he tells us in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. When a person was crucified on the cross, he did not get a royal burial. And he certainly was not buried among the rich. Generally a person who would die such an enigmatic type of death as death on the cross would receive a pauper's kind of grave and service and burial, but not Jesus. Jesus, even though dying on the cross, was buried among the rich. And when we read in Matthew chapter 27 about uh, Joseph of Arimathea and that tomb which was given to the Lord, we see something of the reflection given to us in verse 9. When I read verse 9 and verse 10, this wonderful passage talking about the Lord crushing him, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Is a passage that is saying God was behind all of this. The short version, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. That's what Isaiah 53, 9 and 10 is talking about. Talking about God was behind the matter, orchestrating the scenes, so that these particular matters would take place. And God was satisfied. God was satisfied. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now, sometimes you'll go to the restaurant and eat a salad, and I don't know if you're like me, but I'll eat a salad at a restaurant, and I'm like, man, I'm just not satisfied with that. I need a steak somewhere. <laughs> I need something a little more substantive than that. Just not satisfied. Or you might have that feeling um, uh, where you're involved in some kind of um, discussion and you have a question in your mind and you're studying and you come away like sometimes I do. I'm just not satisfied with uh, the answer that I've got. Or it may be that you look at your own spiritual well-being and you think, you know, I'm just not satisfied with myself. I need to do better. I need to be a better child of God. I'm not satisfied with the way I am. I'm not satisfied with my faith. 
I'm not satisfied with my devotion. But when it came to the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross, God was satisfied. When you notice Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10, and the Hebrew writer talks about those sacrifices. How that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. You see, God was not satisfied. Animal sacrifices couldn't atone for the sins of mankind. God wasn't satisfied. But when the precious blood of Jesus Christ was offered on that cross, God was satisfied. Now, I see Romans chapter 3 in that. I see the love of God being satisfied. I see the justice of God being satisfied. How that God loved the world, and he wanted to save the world, and make it possible for every human being to be saved in heaven and to be with him. But yet God was just and perfect in justice, and could not turn a blind eye to the matter of sin and punishment and penalty. How are we going to satisfy this? And Paul makes the point very plainly in the third chapter, the last portion of that chapter, the blood of Christ satisfies the love of God and the justice of God because it is through his love that he sent that son and it is through his death and suffering that satisfies the payment for the penalty of sin and it is through his sacrifice that now my sins can be forgiven and God is satisfied There's another verse here that you and I need to consider before I go tonight, and you've listened very patiently as I've kind of rambled around on this very difficult chapter. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What he's saying there is, in verse 12, in the conclusion of this section of the suffering servant in the life of Christ, is that he was victorious. Even though the world looked upon the death of Christ on the cross, he was a failure. And the enemies of Christ no doubt looked upon him, aha, we've gotten rid of him now, we finally had the upper hand. Really, he was a great success. And it was a great victory. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The spoils go to the victor. And here he's saying now, the spoils are the souls of mankind. The souls of mankind now can be saved because he gave up his life, because he poured out his soul to death, means he gave his life. He became victorious on the cross. Now, because of that, transgressors can have forgiveness of sin. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He makes it possible for you and I to be saved tonight, to receive forgiveness of sin, and in turn reject the rebellion that's so often a part of our lives and turn to him out of obedient faith. So with this discussion of Hebrews chapter 53, I close with a very familiar passage for us in Hebrews chapter 9 and 22. And in that particular passage, the scripture says, Indeed, under the old law, almost everything is purified by blood. 
And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the only way that God, in turn, could atone for the sins of mankind. And God inspired this ancient prophet to write about it and talk about it and explain it for us tonight as we know it from the standpoint of the New Testament. And what has he taught us? He's taught us about the human condition, which is a sinful condition, that all we like sheep have gone astray. The passage teaches us of our need and require our need for forgiveness. We need to understand the will of God, the divine plan of God, whereby this forgiveness can be obtained and intricately bound up in that plan is the blood that we've studied tonight which forgives sin and pays the price. When an individual repents of sin, is baptized into Christ, he receives the benefit of that blood Isaiah wrote about. Paul wrote about Romans chapter 6. New Testament writers wrote about 1 Peter chapter 3. Jesus spoke about Mark chapter 16. When an individual obeys the gospel of Christ and becomes a child of God, he receives the benefit. He's the beneficiary of all of this wonderful plan which God inaugurated in the long ago for our good. Now's the time for us to apply the fact that this was done for me and that I can receive the benefit of it, but if I will repent and obey the gospel tonight. How could anyone turn away from the gospel of Christ, knowing what you know about it this evening? Will you not become a Christian this evening and become a Christian according to the New Testament way? Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.